0: Fika with Annika. The word fika is used as both a noun and a verb and is derived from the Swedish word for coffee. The Swedish coffee break is a moment to literally leave work behind. Taken at three in the afternoon, it's not a strategy for multitasking or for fitting in another mini meeting. It's a chance to relax in the company of colleagues or friends. The key is to pause your day. So, brew up some coffee, grab a seat, and embrace Fika. So, welcome to another episode of Fika with Anika. I'm here with my distinguished guest, Gordon Pratt, and his wife, Sissy. Uh, Gordon is a uh, resident of ANZA, and he's a uh, your professor from uh, no. River. No,
1: I'm a researcher from uh, UCR, yeah. Okay,
0: a researcher from UCR.
1: I did teach courses, but I wasn't considered a professor.
0: I do have a PhD. Good. Um, But you're also an author. I know that you've written butterfly books and and doing some research on you, Gordon. Your name is mentioned. It keeps popping up in uh, Butterflies of British Columbia, The Dangerous World of Butterflies, The Startling Subculture of Criminals, Collectors, and Conservationists. They mention you on four pages, Gordon. Wow. Um, a Field Guide to Western Butterflies? Uh, yeah,
1: I did do a, a description in there of uh, Euphilodes patoides.
0: Right. And um, I also I know that you wrote a, a fine article on Buckwheat Blues, Part 1, which was published in the American Butterflies.
1: And yeah, there was a Part 2.
0: <laughs> that didn't come up on Google. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, also, the Atlas of Neotropical Lepid- Lepidaria.
1: Lepidoptera. Lepidoptera. Yeah.
0: And, and, and a biography of the Neotropical Butterflies and Skippers. And I believe that you also co-authored On the Perils of Ecological Restoration, Lessons from the El Segundo Blue Butterfly. Yeah. So So, you know, you got a little bit of uh, of uh, information there, that, you know, under yeah. your belt about butterflies. Now I know that you also...
1: about 40 or 50 papers.
0: Yeah, right. Google overload, for sure. Yeah, they are all
1: on, <laughs> online.
0: Right. So I know that you have a vast interest, obviously, not only in butterflies, but in other insects, the plant world and what supports the the mm-hmm. insects and, and and so on. So um, I think I'm just going to let you loose on this one. Uh, me tell loose. me Yeah. So okay. I know you moved up here in Anza because you wanted to be able to preserve some land so that the endangered butterflies yeah, I, would have habitat.
1: Right. Yeah. And what what I found was uh, the Keno checker spot was once thought only to occur up to about three thousand feet, and uh, well, we were trying to find out the distribution of the butterfly since it had become endangered, and it had lost a mass amount of its range. We wanted to know if it occurred here as well, and so I came out here, and I, I sure enough I found it. And the reason that people didn't think it was here because it was because they thought the food plant wasn't here. In fact, the food plant that they had known was the food plant for the Keno checker spot was not here. What I found was the butterfly was using totally different plants, closely related, therefore had similar compounds in them, you know, same toxic compounds, so to speak, that that was in the Plantago recta, which is the original food plant that the butterfly was thought to occur on. And I found it on the Antirrhinum Coterian, which is a white snapdragon. I found them on Kalinzia uh, Concolor, which is a uh, Chinese houses. Um, I found them on uh, Scrofularia... Oh, no, Scro... Uh, rigidus, which is the bird's beak. And uh, it was also found on uh, Orthocarpus or Castilea... Oh, I forgot the name, but anyway, it's, it's the owl's clover. It used that plant Snapdragon. Yeah, I said the white snapdragon, Antirrhinum yeah. cultorum. Sissy helped me find a pile of the, uh, the larval clusters, egg and larval clusters. When we found the butterfly up here, we oh, it also uses Plantago patagonica, which is a, a, one of the plantains, which is closely related to its actual food plant, but it didn't prefer that plant. It, it actually prefers the white snapdragon up here or the Chinese houses.
0: Now, uh, let me just interject. So so the plants that you're naming are all natives to to this, uh, this right. territory? they're all natives. This elevation, yeah. or?
1: They make it up to about 5,500 feet elevation. Okay. So we ended up realizing that the butterfly actually went above, up into the national forest. Well, Sissy and I were sitting down at the, uh, looking at newspaper one day, and uh, saw that there was a bunch of, Properties that were offered up in the Anza area, so we decided to come out and look for property out there. I had originally been offered a piece of property with the the reeds. Um, they had uh, oh, up in Durazno Valley. He had a bunch of property which he was gonna I he was preserving for for the butterflies mitigation for people that had to. Uh, you know, they had found butterflies on their property before they developed it, and when you have when you have butterflies on your property, well, you're sort of forced to to mitigate for that in order to develop the land. And he was okay. selling his land as mitigation points.
0: Now you're talking commercial developments. You're not talking private pe- private persons' oh, yeah. property.
1: It, it affects private people too as well.
0: That's an interesting point. Uh-huh.
1: I don't know how it affects that, but uh, you, you know, you're not—you're not a lot. You're you're supposed to actually. I mean, up in this area, I'm sure that there's a lot of people that have skipped the, you know, having to look at the look for the chemo spot on their property. But you're supposed to identify whether the butterfly was there or not. And if if it does is on your property, you are supposed to get, you know, pay some something for that. Well, he, this guy had offered me a piece of property out there. He had had a. a one of his buyers buy a piece of property for his son who had uh, gone to Vietnam and came back kind of screwed up and he was hoping to get him back into, into society through you know making his own house and, and uh, living out there and getting back into you know the real world, so to speak. Unfortunately, it never happened and he, he gave the land back to it. Greg Readon and and, uh, and Greg Readon offered the property to me I showed this property to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, they said you can't build here there's kangaroo rats on the property (laughs) our favorite yeah one of the unfortunate things is, is when you develop when you actually do a pad or something you kind of open up the habitat for the kangaroo rat and so Um, I was going to have to do some sort of mitigation for the kangaroo rat if I actually use that property. So, you know, it was coming back to sting me, so to speak. And that's why we got into this idea, you know, going on and trying to find our own property. And uh, uh, We looked at a number of places, and I was ready to purchase the first one we saw, and Sissy said, No! No! Hold back! The reason I liked it was it was it was, it was like uh, they had destroyed everything there. And I thought, hey, this would be great to go in and actually fix it up and, and see if you know I can create new habitat again. Well,
0: but, that's uh, a challenge. Yeah,
1: that would have been a challenge. It would have been a big challenge. But uh, we went around and we looked for a number of places. And we found this, this uh, advertisement for a place that had a pond and an orchard. And he said, oh, well, let's
2: go look at that
1: one. And it was way down Dirt Terwilliger Road and uh, kind of uh, out in the middle of nowhere. And the habitat around there looked absolutely perfect for the can checker spot. I said to myself, well, let's see if we can purchase this one. And uh, Sissy was okay on that. So, so we, you got we,
0: approval from the boss. And I got get, approval and, from the boss, yeah. that's right.
1: It, uh, we purchased it and we moved in and, and sure enough that following spring, it was. There were keynote checker spots flying up and down our driveway. It's, it was really amazing.
0: Oh, what a nice welcome to, to Oh, yeah, it was, it was. It was.
1: It was a good thing.
0: So, Gordon, why is this checker spot so important?
1: Um, when people list things, it's with the idea that they're red flags. They're, they're telling us, hey, we got to slow down. we got to be careful. Pretty soon we're going to lose everything, and we're going to turn around and we're going to have nothing for our kids to to enjoy and, and, and have fun with. I mean, I knew when I was a kid, I spent I would you know get up at six in the morning and take off and spend all till nine o'clock at night and come waltzing home at nine, and uh, I really enjoyed the uh, you know nature and what have you. Soon, if we don't stop, we aren't going to have any nature left. It's it's all going to be gone.
0: It's a good indicator of the quality of the property this butterfly does as a good indicator. And it's just like the um, passage pigeon. Passenger pigeon. Yes, you know, this is, they're getting, you know, we we completely uh, eliminated the pigeon. We don't want to do the same thing with this butterfly because it's in the brink of going extinct. So. This is where Gordon comes in and tried to save this uh, butterfly, so we don't lose it. You know, yes. But this is just one butterfly of many. So, so That's I right. guess my question is, why is this one so important? It was
1: once one of the most abundant butterflies in Southern uh, California. It's now one of the
0: rarest. Just like it's, your. It's just
1: indicating um, we, we screwed things up. And
0: so, do you think that's because of, of ha- changes in habitat, or is it uh, pollutants, or um, a lot of
1: things play a role? I mean, fire plays a role. Um, we certainly one of the places we like to put houses are is where they used to like to live. They they like habitat that's cleared, no plants on it, just just the food plants, and that's it. So this this you know guy guy going out and developing says hey, I want to put my houses there. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, that's, that land, when it goes under, it, it takes a population of Kinochark spot as well. But another big, big factor is we introduce non-native grasses from Europe. And they are growing much taller than the food plant, Pantago erecta, and basically shaded out. And, and there's large populations, or swaths of, of where it used to occur that have disappeared where there's no houses. And once the food plant disappears, because these caterpillars, they only feed on specific plants that have particular toxic compounds in them because they become adapted to those toxic compounds. And they, they've therefore therefore, because they're adapted to them, by, you know, only old on them, they know that they're going to be able to survive and what have you. I know it's, 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 it's not really their thinking process, but it's how selection has worked upon them.
0: Right. And they, they uh, eat the poisonous plants so that they're not uh, a favorite fodder of the, of the birds or, or other predators. Or is yeah that the, a lot of the a, other animals survival. would just
1: basically leave them alone mm-hmm. because they, they're, they know that they they're really it. bad tasting as well as not. Okay. Uh, One of the things about this butterfly, it's black, red, and white and that's what's called aposomatic coloration. Mm-hmm aposematic means that it's that it's advertising that it's toxic you look at the monarch butterfly it's black and red it's saying to all birds you don't want to eat me if you do you will remember and never eat another one so and I this see. this this tiny butterfly also has largely black and red too and it's telling birds you don't want to touch me or you will be very sorry And what they will do is actually throw it up often after they've fed upon it. And and some people have actually thought, well, they see it for the second time when they throw it up because the the wind colors and whatever are left out
0: there. just to reinforce that red means no go. Right,
1: right. Right. But you'll notice that a lot of the animals that that you want to be aware of are black and red or black and bright orange. Like look at the tarantula hawk, for instance. You know that giant wasp? Yes. You see, it's what color is it? It's black and, and red. red. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, have you ever been stung by a tarantula?
0: hawk? I have not. I don't I'll look forward you, to it.
1: I tell you, it is the one of the most painful things on earth. It, it really burns, and your ha- your hand will swell up, and you will be very unhappy for quite a quite a while. I mean, you won't die of it. Okay. Because when tarantula hawk. Um, Gives its poison. It's not with the idea of killing it. It doesn't kill the tarantula. It basically um, makes it go into a kind of a torpor state, so that the young can take that feed. She will lay an egg on that uh, tarantula, that paralyzed tarantula, and that tarant that oh. uh,
0: um, the tarantula, tarantula hawk
1: will, larva will actually feed on that tarantula mm-hmm. while it's still alive. and uh,
0: Oh, I think I know of a horror story like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I sure wow, you do. Wow,
0: yeah, nature can be pretty cruel, uh, well, but it, it all has yeah, a, you know, yeah. a common goal. It's all about there's survival. A, there's a
1: lot of alien stuff there, you know. Right, right. Where an actual insect will come out of another insect right. that is fed on the total inside of it. There are, there are <clears> flies, for instance, called small-headed flies, That will lay an egg on a spider, and will live inside the spider, and hatch out, and chew on the rest of it after they've hatched out, and then Uh, pupate and. uh, Oh my goodness! The look I just gave Gordon
0: doesn't make for good radio, but it was like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, so you did mention. uh, So we we have the adult butterfly that's flying around, but then we also have the larvae. And I would just imagine this is like different times of the year, that there's different food opportunities or different right. this is, things this we is, need to think of.
1: This is, this is a butterfly that has a caterpillar stage that goes into what's called diapause. Diapause is a kind of hibernation. But unlike hibernation where a bear goes into hibernation over the winter, the butterfly goes through a period of time where it doesn't feed. And that could be the hottest time of the year, not just the coldest time of the year. In fact, they actually come out and start feeding during the coldest time of the year when, they, when there's a, the food plant suddenly becomes available. The, the mature well, the, the larva that exits diapause will feed on these really, really young plants that have just started to grow. And they can remain in diapause or go in and out of diapause for as long as at least six years which I have found having done captive you know, rearing of this this butterfly. I have a paper on this in which I actually introduced larvae and I went back and, and collected larvae that had gone back into diapause and these were larvae that are already gone into diapause and out of diapause so we know now that they will go into you know, a number of generations or a number of years before they, before they actually mature and what they're doing is going through the really really bad years. There's some years that is just not wet enough where the butterfly if it hatched would be able to find food plant that would get the larvae into into actual diapause. If they can't get those larvae into diapause, the butter whatever the butterfly does is a waste of time. Everything that she puts out will die. So she wants to get a good year like this one. This is a really good year. This is this is probably been one of the best because we've had not, had really good consecutive rains and the temperature in between each one of those rains has been rather cool. And what's neat about that is this is how the butterfly has become adapted to our unpredictable environment. On top of that, even under absolutely wonderful conditions, at least 50% will return to diapause. So that it's kind of a bed hedging. If, uh, you know, a Santa Ana winded condition came and, and wiped everything out before the actual larvae were able to make it, they would still have 50% of the population left, and they'll try again next year or the year after or whatever. Um, yeah. It, uh...
0: So, yeah, so I see there's two dangers then to the larva. And uh, one is with these heavy rains. Yeah, it might be ideal, except it also means all these non-native grasses are right. flourishing. That I know true. what my backyard looks like. It's like a lot of green grass coming up. Uh, and then one of the advantages of
1: the plants up here is they're not as short as the Plantago erecta. The Plantago erecta is only like two inches tall. The Antirrhinum cultariense can get to be a couple feet tall. And so the, the population, in some ways, is doing is maybe doing better up here than down in the lowlands.
0: And then the other thing that would be a threat is um, that uh, uh, vehicles and horseback riders uh, doing... uh, One
1: of of the big problems with the butterfly is they like to put their, their eggs on plants that are long trails and what have you. So horseback trails are a bad place to let... Let the horses travel at the particular season when the caterpillars are out. Which is when? Um, that generally, at, at this elevation, it, it ends probably by the end of May.
0: So the maybe between March and May, or so, is like the window for. Um, or
1: March is really the time that the adults are, but on a cool year like this, they may go into April. Um, in fact, I think really it's it's early April that the, the butterfly starts flying. I did a study down in Murrieta High School, which I, I was talking about uh, looking at these caterpillars returning to diapause. One of the things I was also looking at was where do these caterpillars go to? And I found that almost all of them went to what's called California buckwheat. They which all we like have to di-
0: everywhere. Oh mm-hmm.
1: yeah, but. Sometimes getting things to occur in exactly the right spot together is not as easy as you think. Okay. Because the plant, where the Plantago is is not really the best spot for the, uh, the California buckwheat. But uh, one of the things that I've noticed is almost everywhere where this butterfly is found there's a little bit of this California buckwheat, not other species of buckwheats, which I find rather interesting. What is neat about California buckwheat is that it holds its leaves through the drought of the summer. A lot of these uh, desert, or not desert, but Mediterranean perennial bushes, they drop a lot of their leaves and they basically go really dry and dormant. Yes, California buckwheat doesn't do that, which makes it a nice, a moisture environment for these caterpillars to hang out, or at least that's what I think is happening here.
0: And I also know that the, uh, the buckwheat is a source of nectar in the fall. When there's uh, limited resources of nectar, <coughs> so I've been told, or misinformed. I'm looking at you. Gordon, yeah, they, you're, uh, <laughs> you're squinting your eyes. Yeah, at they
1: they don't use the butterflies don't use the nectar of California buckwheat that much. They prefer what's called uh, Canadis glandulosa uh, and yeah uh, glandulosa. Uh, no, it's Glabri- black or, or something. And uh, there's Senecia californica. And the females really prefer specific nectar sources. Now, a male will will nectar on practically anything, but a female kino checker spot is pretty zoned in to particular flowers, and those three are are major ones. They'll sometimes use cryptantha as well. And I suspect part of the reason for that is that the female has to produce, you know, all these eggs. It's not much of a resource for the male because sperm is, is uh, rather small and and uh, he can easily make new sperm without even having to go out and get a good
0: nutrient-rich
1: okay. resource. The female has to get a good nutrient resource. And she can maybe put out 500 to 1,000 eggs, and that's a lot of eggs.
0: Does she, she put does, them all in one spot or, or does she go...
1: She puts out clusters about... Fifty to I mean, 20 to 100 eggs, depending on the quality of the, uh, the food plant. I mean, if it's, if it's really extensive, she may put a whole pile of eggs. Whereas if it's just tiny plants scattered around, she may put only like 10 or 15 eggs, or, or usually around 20.
0: Interesting that they know how to count.
1: They spend a lot of time searching. I mean, if you watch a female looking for a good spot to lay her eggs, she will crawl around and she sticks her admin under, testing everything as she goes. She may not be actually counting, but she will have some sort of sense of the, of the quantity of plants that are there.
2: Trails in the local community can happen with your support. Anza Area Trail Town, A A T T is working to create a local trail system that will connect established trails and create community trails that residents and visitors can enjoy. Becoming a member or donating to AATT, you are helping to create sustainable trails and staging areas where people can enjoy the unique environment of our mountain communities. You are helping to make the Juan Batista de Anza National Historical Trail, a boots on the ground trail, and not just a motor route through our community. Riverside County has identified this trail as a regional trail that will be a dedicated trail in the years to come. Today, this trail in many forms travels from Mexico, through Arizona, and through California, and ends in the Presidio in San Francisco. Another way to support AATT's great efforts is by donating your time as a volunteer. We have many kinds of committees just looking for your help. And also by donation of land for easements, for trails and staging area. An upcoming fundraising event is our second National Trails Day celebration. This year the theme is Trails Rejuvenate Mind, Body, and Soul. It will be held June 1st and will be a hike, horseback ride, and bike event. So stay tuned for more information on this celebration. For more information on joining, donating, or volunteering, the website is anzaareatrailtown.org or Board President Jackie Hare can be reached at phone number 714-746-2021. AATT's Facebook page is www.facebook.com forward slash Anza Area Trail Town. Happy Trails!
3: Attention Mountain Residents. Recognizing community needs in the age of technology, the Anza Electric Cooperative is partnering with the Riverside County Information and Technology Department and Anza Community Broadcasting, KOIT, to distribute refurbished desktop computers for free to income-qualified residents. These desktop computers come loaded with Windows 10 and Home Office. If you're interested in seeing if you or your family member qualifies, the applications are available online at anzaelectric.org, at the Anza Electric Cooperative front office, at Lorraine's Pet Supply, and in the box outside of the KOYT station. Once you have filled out your application, it can be scanned and emailed to fundraising at KOYT971.org. It can be mailed P.O. Box 391-229, Anza, California, 92539, or handed in at Loreen's Pet Supply, the co-op office, or in the mail slot at the KOYT station.
1: TLP Anza your public radio station
0: Welcome back to Fika with Anika
1: Butterflies learn things from their habitat much more than we realize I've watched a monarch this past summer and I could see her learning all of the different variables in her environment she went to the same tree every night to, to roost. And every morning she would get up and go and nectar or feed on the nectar of a specific plant I had growing called Mexican sunflower. She just loved that plant. And every morning she would go there. And I would go and work up in you know, in my fenced enclosure with my native plants. And there she would pop up at around noon. I, I felt like she was oh. up there visiting me. I know she wasn't, but <laughs> she had learned at that, that there was things that she could go and feed on up there. Right. I had what was called Senecio um, flacidus, which is what one of the butterweeds, I believe it's called. And, you know, she would always come up there just, just around the same time of day to feed on that nectar, which was which I found really interesting. Well, I've watched tiger swallowtails following the same pathways. And every day, and you can almost be there at the same time, and a tiger swallowtail which I presume is the same individual, would be flying right through there. So I think, I think they are able to, to determine things out there. Now they're not gonna be counting, you know, like, mm, there were 50 er, you know, Plantago recta there, 50 Plantago patagonicas. That's enough, I can yeah. lay eggs. No, no, she's determined quantity. Is there enough plants in general in that area to, to, to support her caterpillars and uh, she will then pick one plant out of all the plants there that's out and exposed in the most sun and she will lay it, her eggs on that. And once those eggs hatch, the, the caterpillars will feed on that plant and will form this nice heavy dense webbing around the plant and the caterpillars grow and later they will move off onto other plants. One of the interesting things about this tent enclosure, silken enclosure, is it's almost like a house. There are actually particular entrances scattered around this, this tent enclosure. And they figure out how to get in and out all the time. But the really neat thing about it is you watch a predator coming in, and he touches the silk. What do you think he thinks he, he's touching the silk that would that may be behind it a spider oh i think there's, that's one of the protections of, of actually having this silken enclosure keeps you know these these of insect course. predators away because that you know they have become adapted to living with spiders they don't run towards a spider or search out a spider they say hey hey, hey it's time to get out of here right so, oh,
0: how clever!
1: And uh, well, yeah, I mean, clever things are evolved
0: for, yeah, of course.
1: And what they do after that, you know, they've been using this this plant that was out in the most sun. They go look for plants in more shadier and shadier spots because those those are not as far along in development. Because when you're out in the shade, it's cooler, moister, so they go, plants grow a little you know slower there, and that's where they finish up. And when oh, okay. they occur underneath the buckwheat, they just basically would go right to the base of that buckwheat to to diapause. I found oh, wow. as many as twenty that had been, you know, roaming free before were all clustered together under a single buckwheat. Oh, and they don't feed on buckwheat, so it's it's kind of interesting that you know here's here's something that adds to the you know variables needed for the butterfly population.
0: Right. So um, I know that you're a avid native plant grower. I've had the pleasure of uh joining you on your uh, annual plant sales and um, I have in, in front of us here uh, a list from a plant sale from maybe last year or the year before, and there must be close to a hundred different different uh, types of native plants that you've right. been you've been growing basically in your backyard and in a in a uh, in a small greenhouse. Area and um, th- that you've propagated from seed or from cuttings, and
1: um, yeah, I try and grow things from seed as much as possible. Cuttings is you putting when you put out cuttings, you're putting out reduced genetic variability. You want to have as much genetic variability when you when you sell these plants because people are going to be putting them in their yard, and if they put 30 of the same plant genotype, it's it's not that great for the for the population. It's better it's, to have a large variety of
0: genes right. out there. And one thing I notice is that you always use native soil in your pots. Right. So you don't use any of the commercial planting soils or any or anything no. that's available. No. That the best survival then is to plant it directly into the native soil and and when it's transplanted. Well, that's
1: the, that's the advantage of doing it is you're putting native soil into native soil basically. Rather than putting you know something that really doesn't belong there, I have found that some of these soils are they dry out a little. Bit, you know, they're prepared soils; they dry out real easily, and they're made for you know for garden patches rather than for putting out in your
0: in your habitat in your habitat, so yes, to speak. Yes. Yes. Now you've done work down in Vale Lake, or not? Excuse me, not Vail Lake, Vale Ranch in Temecula, and you've developed a butterfly garden there for them.
1: Well, we're planning to have a butterfly house there. We're that's more Eve's work.
0: And Eve Canella. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I helped her by giving her plants and what have you, but that's she's doing that
0: work. On I, own, see, I see. I see, you, but you've been supplying some of your native plants for right, them and, and, right, and right. consulting. Yeah, the I would like writer.
1: them to plant as many natives as they possibly can.
0: Of yes. course, of course. Um, so, yeah, many
1: of the plants that are on this list are really butterfly, um, not specific, but ones that butterflies depend on. Like, A lot of them are food plants for butterflies, some of them are nectar plants for butterflies, and some of them are even uh, nectar plants for, uh, for hummingbirds, because I like hummingbirds as well. I mean, it's, they're kind of cool animals.
0: They are, they are. So you and Sissy go out and collect seed at different times of the year. Yeah, this, in is, preparation this is going for... to be a
1: year for that. I'll tell you. Yeah, we'll, we'll probably make some several trips out to, a little later in the season. We we go after everything's bloomed and that and, and you can't see the flowers anymore. So we we have to learn flowers at all these different stages. So when we go out there, we we know what which seed to collect because. It looks very different from when the flower was there. Of I mean, you go out there after the, the goldie Fields have finished blooming. You just got a pile of seed pods out there. You got to be able to, you know, figure out which seed po- which are the seeds of the of the uh, goldie fields and which are you know seeds of the erodium, which is what you don't want.
0: But the erodium is a uh, a native. No,
1: it's not. Starch bill is not a native. We do have a native oh. starch bill. But that's out in the desert. That's Erodium texana. A lot of the Erodiums that are here were actually brought in by the Spaniards.
0: Oh, so we just just because we see it, we think it's native, but it's not.
1: It's not, unfortunately. It's it a is. pretty flower too. I, I like it, but it, it does it does take over. And oh. uh, yeah, I don't encourage people to grow Erodium in their yard or okay. store spell
0: Okay. Um, all right. So um, d- again, looking at this list of plants, some of them are um, low-growing. Some of them are actually bushes. They're, I know you grow some manzanitas also. Right. And um, you have a, 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 an incredible variety of plants here. So if if a, a novice were coming in and they're they're on their land here and they have some untouched areas of their property. And they want to enhance that for the butterflies. Do you have a selection of plants that you would recommend, like maybe like five different plants for someone uh, that's readily available, maybe in nurseries, or that uh, there be well, a seed source? Well, a key. lot of
1: the plants that I have on my list are actually plants you can't get in nurseries.
0: So they're not commercially viable because they're either ugly or they're, yeah they're not commercially
1: available. Plant. Well, I don't they're not. A lot of the plants that I grow are actually difficult. Nurseries like to grow easy-to-grow plants. I like yeah. to grow plants that that I think are best in your yard, and a lot of them are actually difficult to grow. Um, yeah. So, thinking of like the
0: butterflies, the, the milkweed. Yeah, that, I have, yeah, I
1: have. I grow about a half a dozen. It's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I have, I have about seven or eight species that I, that I grow
0: for. And they're all natives?
1: They're all natives, yes.
0: Okay, because I know that the milkweed that I typically see in the commercial nurseries tends to be like a tropical one that's more native. Well, that's called native. Mexican
1: milkweed, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Is that semi-native? like, Or is that something that you would recommend that people go out and use Yeah, and if you want that? monarchs,
1: the advantage of that plant is it's very easy to grow. I can... I can take cuttings of that plant, stick it in water, and it'll it'll start growing roots. You can't do that with any of the native milkweeds.
0: So they all have to be started from seed. And they're also a bit, they're not showing.
1: The other disadvantage of it is it will die in winter
0: in Anza. Oh, the Mexican one, because it's, it's more tropical. Exactly. Okay. Which is good for the commercial nursery because then you sell more the next spring. Oh yeah, okay. that's true.
1: <laughs> one of the things I found recently is that I go down to Home Depot. Every single one of them are covered with monarch eggs, so they must be growing them in spots where they have oh. monarchs really common. It's yes, it's interesting, and that's that probably encourages them well as well because people, when they plant these plants, they'll have instant monarchs come up in their yard because you know. The eggs are already there, and these form the caterpillars and the larvae, and then they, they pupate and wow. they get the butterflies. In fact, that's that's how I got that female that I watched for about a month in my yard. It came from Home Depot. And for some reason, she stayed around for a month. She never left. I do not know why. These milkweeds, one of the things that has to be, re- be remembered is that each species has a different different elevation that it can occur in. Uh, They also have different amounts of uh, water requirement like this uh, Sclepius fascicularis. It requires a fair amount of water. It grows along the edges of streams and at springs and what have you. Whereas the Sclepia is highly adapted to desert conditions and will remain dormant for multiple years just waiting for the right rain to come up. Albicans Is one that uh, only occurs up to maybe 2,500 feet elevation. So if you were planning to grow it in Anza, it wouldn't survive. But that is a really, really beautiful milkweed. If you occur down in, let's say Riverside or Murrieta, because it gets to be about 10 feet tall, and the uh, the trunk can get to be as much as four or five inches in diameter. It's a beautiful plant, and it has and the flowers just at the very, very top. Of, this, uh, of the stalk. It's it's a rather interesting plant. And in subulata, which looks, that's called a reed milkweed. Subulata is another reed milkweed, it's, but it gets a little higher in elevation, and it grows from the, the base each year, but it has these uh, long reed-like uh, branches that come up. Uh, sculpius vastitas can go up to a you know, fairly high elevation. It can get up to maybe 65, 7,000 feet and survive the winters out there. So there's, nice. each of these species has an advantage to different areas. So if you came to me and says, oh, I live at 6,500 feet, I would say, well, you got to pick this one, mm-hmm. Vestidas. Right. Vestidas. And uh, that would be the one that you, you know, bring to your house and start growing in your yard.
2: Okay.
0: So, um, so if I was a newbie here in the area, and I have my property, and there's native plants already there, and I'm seeing things like buckwheat and uh, the Great uh, Basin sage, which most people think of as a nuisance, um, and the first thing they want to do is just go get rid of these. Uh, what of the, are the hey, native I really, plants? I really
1: in? encourage Great Basin, I mean, uh, California buckwheat. Great Basin sage is, is a nuisance. Okay. And it's, I have a variety of feelings on that plant. It's, it's actually a, a, a perching site for some butterflies, but as far as I know, it's not a perching site here. And what, what I mean by perching site is if it starts to rain, where do they go? They go to the old flower stalks of the uh, Great Basin Sage and they roost or perch on these old flower stocks. This is not this year's flower stocks. It's the last year's flower stocks. And the reason Great Basin Sage is preferred for roosting sites is because nobody lives on, on Great Basin Sage. So birds don't go look for, for things to feed on, on Great Basin Sage. This is my theory or hypothesis anyway. But it was it's neat because I could go into an area looking for the specific butterfly because I knew that it roosted on these flower stalks, I could go look for them and find them on these flower stalks late in the day. And these these were rare butterflies that were doing this, so all I had to do was just find these particular plants. Why Great Basin Sage is not a good plant is because it was never really that common here. When we brought in cattle, cattle hated Great Basin Sage. So who do you think got selected? Great Basin sage. There's lots of areas now that have just tons of Great Basin sage, and this was because of long-term grazing upon the habitat. Hmm. But Great so Basin—it
0: would be okay then to, to remove the Great Basin sage out of your your habitat. Yeah, they, uh, make room you know, for other ones.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I I would. It wouldn't be bad to leave a couple. There are okay. there are insects that have become adapted to them, and there are a number of flies, for instance. I mean, if you're interested in in general uh, entomology, it's kind of nice to leave a couple at least. But if you have hundreds in your yard, I would recommend getting rid of a lot of it and replacing it with something else. California buckwheat would be a good thing to you know to put in because it's actually is fed upon by a lot of a dif- lot of different species of insects. It has a very high diversity of insects. And if you're trying to improve the environment, you want to have a diverse number of species for the, the birds, lizards, and what have you to feed on it because they're important to our environment. As an example, yes. there's, a, there's a very common lizard in, in a lot of our yards called the fence lizard. It is extremely important at controlling what's called Lyme disease. What happens is the tick that, you know, carries the Lyme disease clasps on to to the lizard, generally around the ear, and the blood is exchanged between the lizard and the uh, tick. And the lizard blood clears the tick of the disease, which causes a far reduction in the Lyme disease, in the area where these fence lizards occur. Which, which shows you how important it is to, you know, to maintain, you know, diversity in in your habitat.
0: I'm sure that uh, there's a lot of people who just aren't aware of that fact, and you are just such a vast source of, of, uh, interesting, uh, aspects of nature, things, you know, you know, for the most part, we just look out our window and say, it wasn't that beautiful. And whereas you go to to really uh, get intimately involved with with the, with the habitat and what's going on, and uh, just wanted to give you kudos to that. Um, I know that there's uh, you have quite a bit of involvement, like I mentioned, uh, the Vale uh, Ranch Butterfly Garden and. Uh, the Sierra Club is close to your heart that you've donated money to them from, from your plant sales and various other organizations. I know that you yeah, go and give talks.
1: sources of money, the, yeah. the Sierra Club. So.
0: Yeah. yeah, so any help that they can have is good. Uh-huh. Right. Um, I know that you give uh, workshops and lectures with, at local nurseries. You've been down to Musa Creek Nursery down in Valley Center and, and other places right. too. Uh, I kind of wanted to wind up this interview at this time at this point. Um, we're at um, about a 40 minute mark, and I have many more questions for you, Gordon. I'd like to interview you again, bring you and Sissy in here. And maybe we could Absolutely. Before we yeah. end, I, yeah.
1: I, I, it just came into my mind a little bit ago. There, There's a really, really beautiful butterfly I found in Southern California called the Great Purple Hairstreak.
0: Say that again, the Great Purple? The
1: Great Purple Hairstreak. And Lady's Hairstreak. Hairstreak, yeah. It's, it's about this big but it's it's beautiful iridescent purple and and blue purple on its uh dorsal wings and it has this iridescent green and red it's it's a gorgeous butterfly it's it certainly is the most beautiful one to me in, in southern california it feeds on a plant called mistletoe i know people cut the mistletoe off their plants because they think that it's killing their native plants We've and been what i'm trying that. What I'm trying to say is don't cut those plants off, because we're actually eliminating the habitat for for the butterfly when you do that, and I'd hate to see that butterfly disappear because we...
0: But when, after a while with the mistletoe, what don't you, uh, the the trees die and you've then ruined... A good um, parasite
1: doesn't kill its host. Now it may eventually kill its host, but a good parasite actually, and that's what this is, it's a parasitic plant it doesn't want to kill its oak host or or whatever host it's on. (coughs) In fact, there's a species that's only found on juniper, and there's a species that's largely found on oak, and there's a species that's found largely on mesquite, and there are a few others.
0: Are these native?
1: They're all native. native. So
0: they're meant to be there?
1: Oh, yeah. In fact, there's a bird that actually transplants these. It's called the phenopepola. And it feeds on the berries and when it poops on the, on the branch, that's how the seeds germinate. It has all this wonderful nutrients already set up for it to to get into the, uh, into the branch itself. So there's kind of an interesting interaction here between the, the great purple hair streak and the phenopepola. Without the phenopepola the great purple hair streak may disappear.
0: So, have you seen this, this wonderful purple butterfly up here in, in this oh, area? Oh
1: yeah, I've collected just in my yard uh, around fifty caterpillars on my juniper.
0: Lady. I have to start paying more attention, obviously, out there because I just see I just I'm just seeing the swarms that are happening now. You know, yeah, what the that's, Mexican lady, yeah, the painted ladies, by, yeah. right? And, and there's the
1: great purple hair shake.
0: <laughs> <laughs> really. Oh, yeah. It's incredibly fast. Okay.
1: You, you wouldn't know unless it, until it stops to feed on nectar on a flower. Then you then you would see it. It's okay. It's a really beautiful and,
0: it, and it's about an inch and a half. Yeah.
1: Two inches, maybe two maybe. inches. Yeah. Two inches. Maybe three and, inches at top. Okay. the Female is larger than the male. The male would be around two, two and a half, okay. and the female would be three, three and a half, maybe four. How big is four? Is that is that? That would be about the biggest one. Is that nearly
0: four? Or oh, I'd say that's three, but <laughs> okay, three inches then. Okay, okay, very good. Okay, so anyhow, so I'd love to have you back again. Sure. I want to definitely talk more about uh, your interest in ants, ants, right. yeah, um, and uh, again, more about the the plant and vegetation out here, and and what we can do to uh, to encourage people to uh, to continue growing natives. If they're in the yard, don't don't take them out, and and if you got the space, bring more in. So, yeah.
1: I don't know if you have any way for the uh, your audience to you know, communicate back to you, but if they wanted to send you know questions and whatever, we do.
0: Absolutely, we could uh, them. message me on my Facebook page, Fika with Anika, or um, send your information or your questions for Gordon to info at koyt971.org and uh, we'll uh, start answering uh, your very important questions. So thank you. Thank you for listening in on another uh, episode of Fika with Annika. Have a happy Wednesday. Thank you for listening in to Fika with Annika. Enjoy your cup of Fika Wednesdays at 3 p.m. and replayed Sundays at
2: 1 p.m.